triage is the process of determining the priority of a patient's treatments based on the severity of their condition. So it's the process of determining the most important people, the most important things from a large amount that demand your attention. If you want triage in a phrase, it is assessing need and then prioritizing the, neediness, the neediest. So imagine you arrive at the scene of a multi-car accident on the bypass, shed loads of people injured, sirens blazing, people screaming, triage is that moment that you stop, you assess what's happening, you assess the greatest needs, organize your priorities, and then bash on with whatever comes to the top of the list. So, you deal with the young child with a huge gash across their forehead before you attend to the slightly overweight guy whose seatbelt has just squeezed him a little bit too tightly. Or even within one person, you apply pressure to a bleeding wound before you deal with a broken nail. Did you get the picture? Change it slightly. You arrive at the scene of the Titanic 15 minutes after it struck the iceberg. And you're met with a harrowing image of hundreds of people floating in the water, some alive, others dead. Again, the moment of triage is where you stop, assess what's happening, and then press on with what is the most urgent need that meets your eye. Now, in the hundreds of lives of the people in front of you in the water, there will be a thousand and one issues. Some of the people in the water will be unemployed. Some will be battling depression. Some will have cancer. Some will have horrendous family situations. Some will be sacrificing their family at the altar of career. Others will be committing adultery. But in that moment, do any of those things matter? That, that wasn't rhetorical. Do any of those things matter? No, at that point, there is a more pressing issue. You would be a muppet if from the lifeboat you try and start a counseling session with a warring husband and wife. Now, there is a more pressing issue. You get them out of the water and into the boat, correct? You would be a numpty if from the lifeboat you start an AA meeting with a drunk still in the water, correct? There is a more pressing issue. You get him out of the water and into the lifeboat. You're a fool if from the lifeboat you hand a food package to a mother on the poverty line. Nah, there is a more pressing issue. You get her out of the water and into the boat, correct? Now you may stand before a church in which you're an elder, a family of which you are a parent, or you may stand in a scheme of 3,000 or in a city of 450,000, but before you will be a million and one issues. But here is why we start today with the question, what is the gospel? Your church may have hundreds of pastoral issues that need your attention, many ministries that need your attention, many hills that you think are worthy of dying on. But the greatest need of every soul in your congregation is a trust in and a love of the gospel. Your family may feel like a battleground, a complicated spouse you've never even begun to understand, a tantruming toddler, a spotty, greasy, grumpy teenager. You in the middle is the biggest plum of them all, and that's not to mention the wider family. But what is your greatest priority? To live for, to demonstrate, to teach 
the gospel. The family is your first primary mission field. You may feel like your mission agency or your church is under-equipped to meet the huge and diverse needs of your city or your nation. But listen, it doesn't matter whether it is a professor from the academy, an MP from the parliament, a homeless student in the street corner, a kid from the poshest school in the city, an orphan in the hamster wheel of the fostering system, or a single mum addict on a scheme. Whatever they are, whoever they are, their greatest need is understanding, knowing, and trusting the gospel. If we take time to do a biblically informed triage of our world, the greatest need is not social reform, it is not more food banks, it is not more homeless shelters, it is not improved education, it is not fresh expressions of church, it is not a new parliament, but it is a love for the gospel. The severity of the situation demands a deeper solution. Here's what's needed. Christians who have been equipped to apply the gospel to themselves, who are then equipped to apply the gospel to the world. What is needed is crystal clear understanding of both the gospel and how that gospel then applies. And often, we fail at both. Some of us feel on the one hand, where we say things about the gospel that are actually the true gospel. Maybe things like, oh, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Or Jesus wants to have a relationship with you and he has a great destination for you. Or God is here to transform every aspect of society and he wants you to jump on the train and join him on that journey. Now, those things may have nuggets of the truth in them, but they are not the true gospel. And a false or an incomplete gospel is like a placebo. Although it may make the person feel better, it lacks the power to truly cure. And there can be no hope for sin-sick sufferers if we do not get the message right. On the other hand, some of us are able to debate the intricacies and differences between major and minor doctrines of the Bible but we do not have a scooby how they apply to the real lives of needy human beings. In fact, we don't have a scooby how it applies to our own lives. I've known biblical theology professors with more degrees in Fahrenheit whose lives are consumed by anger and bitterness to fellow Christians. I've known pastors who preach week by week whose private lives are enslaved to pornography. I've known elders tasked to keep watch over the household of God whose home lives have been characterized by an abusive relationship with their wife and wild and exasperated children. I've known youth leaders who teach the scriptures to kids on a morning after a drunken night out and a night in bed with a non-Christian boyfriend. The gospel must always be applied. Theology is application. I was once told... You've never truly understood something until you can explain it simply. Let me change that slightly for our purposes. You have never truly believed something until you have applied it. See, you cannot offer what you do not have. You cannot offer a life-transforming gospel if that gospel has not transformed your life. 
The gospel is never something that you just explain. It is something that is deeply experienced. It is never something that was just applied by Christ then. It is always something that is applied by the Spirit now. And where as Christians we need to take time is getting both the message right and how that message applies right. So all I'm going to do this morning is ask the question, what is the gospel? And the answer to that question is infinitely deep and it is infinitely wide, but the beauty of it is you can explain it so simply that even a child can understand. So we're going to walk through it in four headings. I think it was in a book by Greg Gilbert, God, Man, Christ, Response. He will have nicked it from someone else, but that's what we're going to go with. God, Man, Christ, Response. Are you with me? Yes? Happy days. Right. God. The gospel begins and ends with God. It begins with his unchanging character and his sovereign choices in eternity. And it ends with saved sinners enjoying his character as a result of his choices. God is the infinite, eternal, holy creator of all. He alone is worthy of praise and honor and glory and power. And as the holy, holy, holy God, his eyes are too pure to look on sin and his character so just that he cannot leave sin unpunished. Now, our experience in the schemes of Scotland is that there is an innate supernaturalistic worldview People do not have a problem believing in some supernatural entity or the fact that a God exists. You will not find many intellectually convinced atheists on a housing scheme. You see, to us, death is very real. And so for most people, there is a very real concept of life beyond death. That means that there is a longing to understand the afterlife, and a deep desire, often that comes from deep grief, to communicate with the afterlife. So last Friday night, we were running a youth gig on the outside of the local community center. In the inside of the community center was gathered a group of people for a supernatural kind of spiritualist reading and seance. And that's normal on a scheme. A Ouija board is more common in the households of a scheme than a Monopoly board, to put it that way. That means that conversations about heaven and hell are normal, a God is a given, and that is actually probably more similar to somewhere like Papua New Guinea than it is to somewhere like Morningside. Now, the issue is not that people don't believe in God. The issue is the people, the kind of God that people believe in. For most of us, we believe God is irrelevant, disinterested, and lenient. Now that may be different in your context, but it is absolutely essential, no matter where we are, that we proclaim the character of God. We must proclaim a God who is holy and who hold people to account, and we must present a God who can be known and who in Christ has made himself known. To say, listen, God is God and you're not. 
You were created by him, therefore you're accountable to him. You were designed by him, therefore your life will be defined by him. You were purposed by him, therefore your purpose is to live for him. And anything else you live for is not only dead and nothing and worthless and ignorant, but according to the Bible is disobedient, rebellious, self-loving idolatry. Now that applies in our context where people are desperate to, to speak with a God, desperate to know, is my relative in heaven or in hell? Because we can say, listen, the answer to the pain of death will not be found in a spiritualist reading. The answer to the pain of death will be found in the author of life. But the answer is not one that you can pick and choose depending on your lifestyle or to fit around your fancies, but the answer will come from the sovereign king before whom you must bow the knee. And listen, proper, true good news in the face of your tough every day will not come from the meanderings of a psychic's mind, but will come first as you acknowledge that you are accountable to him for the poor decisions that you have made in the past, but to know that because there is a God and he is good, that there is good news. God, we must proclaim his character and our accountability to him as we proclaim the gospel. One, God. Two, man, humanity. Now, humanity has been created in the image of God, and so all humanity, and I mean all, not just the healthy, not just the able-bodied, not just those outside the womb, not just those from the middle classes. All humanity has a humble dignity. And created in the image of God, where we, are, we were created first to relate to him, second to rule under him, and third to find our rest in him. However, the story of humanity is we were not content to relate to him. We wanted to be him. We were not happy to rule under him. We wanted to rule instead of him. And instead of finding our rest in the creator, we'll exchange the creator for his creation and his truth for a lie. And so all humanity enters the relentless, restless race towards hell. We are all dead in sin, following the prince of the power of the air, living in disobedience, satisfying the passions of our flesh according to our nature as children of wrath. Now, when it comes to sin, most of us have a kind of sliding scale. So as long as my behavior doesn't impinge too much on other people, and as long as I'm not as bad as them, then it's cool. Sit with any man in prison, any man in prison, no matter how bad his crime and the reason for him being here, guaranteed he can point to someone else who is the real monster who is here for serious crime. There is something in all of us that will find someone worse around us to make us feel better. And especially as you enter a scheme, it may be similar in other contexts, but as soon as you enter Gracemount, you'll notice that there is a real victim mentality. It's almost as if there is a banner over the gateway to our scheme that says, it's not my fault. 
Add to that the fact that most counseling from therapists or social workers fills our heads with the ideas that we are just good people who have been trapped by bad circumstances that adds to our victim mentality. Now that's important because if you are a victim, it means that there's nothing to say sorry for, just lots of stuff to complain about. Now, the Bible confronts this victim entitlement mentality when James, for example, writes, each one of us is tempted and dragged away by our own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Here's James's point. My sin and my death are a consequence of my evil desires. I sin because I choose to sin. I sin because I want to sin. I sin because I desire to sin. I cannot look to or blame my circumstances or my parents or the government. See, death is not just something that will happen to me. Death will be something that is deserved by me. See, yes, there is a place for compassion. Yes, there is a place for mercy. Yes, we are all victims to some extent or another. But the Bible will never allow us to excuse our behavior because of the behavior of others. So what does that mean? It means that wherever we engage in mission, we must help people and remind ourselves not to see ourselves primarily as victims, but as willful rebels. Putting your arm around someone and telling them that Jesus loves them and everything's going to be all right is not a loving thing to do. The most loving thing we can do for people is not just help them pay their electricity bill or help them find work or clean them up or give them a bed or help them with their drug habit. Now, we should do these things, but the most loving thing is to remind them of their accountability to a holy, holy holy God, and if they remain in their sinful, sinful, sinful condition, then they face an eternity in hell. The most loving thing to do is to warn them of the eternity that faces them outside of Jesus. See, unless we see ourselves as the Bible does, we'll leave ourselves trapped and helpless in a hamster wheel and we'll be destined to see ourselves at the center of the world where everything is about me and my problems. But when you help people see humanity as God sees humanity, you begin to open a door to real, true, lasting, eternal change. And getting this right is crucial. Because if you or me misdiagnose the problem, we will prescribe the incorrect solution. God, man. Third then, Christ. The answer to sinful humanity's accountability to a holy God is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've got a Bible, come with me quickly. We're not going to land here long. But to Mark chapter 5. Now, when you get there, if you just scan Mark chapter 5, you'll see that we meet three people. First, Legion, 
who is the demon-possessed man. Second, Jairus, whose daughter has just died. Third, an unnamed bleeding woman. Now, what smacks you in the face when you read Mark chapter 5 is the inevitability and the inescapability of the problems facing these people. So look at Legion in verse 3. You read, no one could bind him anymore. Verse 4, no one was strong enough to subdue him. If you look at the woman in verse 26, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And Legion, sorry, Jairus in verse 35, is told by his servants, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Here's the worldview that smacks you in the face when you read Mark 5. No one's strong enough. Nothing's worked. Why bother? Now, it is very tempting, especially when you come into a place like Grace Mount, and you see the generational cycles that seem inescapable. But it is just as daunting when you look at our own lives and see the battles of enslavery to sin. It's very tempting to align yourself with this mindset. No one's strong enough. Nothing's worked. Why bother? But look at what happens to each of these individuals. In verse 6, when Legion saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. Verse 22, when Jairus saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Verse 33, then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. When you are at an end of yourself, when no one else has been strong enough, when nothing else has worked, you can and must fall on your face at the feet of Jesus. You need to be very careful about using language like no one's strong enough, nothing's worked, and why bother when Jesus is in the room? It doesn't matter if you're a mentalist roaming naked in caves, a prominent leader brought to your knees in bereavement, or a woman who has tried everything, exhausting all medical help, all can and must fall on their face at the feet of Jesus. The answer to a sinful humanity's accountability to a holy God is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who in his life modeled and exemplified and achieved the perfect standard of righteousness that God's law required. Jesus Christ, who in his miracles gives us glimpses and demonstrations of his future coming perfect kingdom. Jesus Christ, who dies on a cross in my place as my substitute, bearing my sin, my shame, my guilt, my curse. But Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, swallowing the oppressive reign of death, obliterating the enslaving reign of sin, and ushering in a future kingdom of freedom. You don't find that anywhere else. Many in Graceman are like the woman in Mark 5. 
They've tried everything, legal and illegal, doctor and dealer. They've spent literally all they have. But instead of growing better, they grow worse. The point? You don't find this anywhere else. It is this Jesus that people need, a sin-bearing, atonement-making, guilt-cleansing, living Redeemer. Now, that is good news, correct? My sin, mine. Oh, the bliss, total bliss, of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to his cross, so I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Now, maybe you're not a Christian this morning. You're thinking, who is this mentalist shouting from the pulpit? Listen, maybe this is you. Maybe you have tried everything life has to offer. Maybe it's like, it's that what used to feel like it gave you life actually now feels like it enslaves. Maybe it's just your job has shown you the worst of humanity. Maybe you have tried everything, but all you've got is emptiness. Maybe you've tried running from everyone you love, but you still cannot escape this guilt. Listen, the point is you don't get this anywhere else. If you've spent all you've got, if you've exhausted every other option, I plead with you. You don't find this anywhere but Jesus. A life you should have lived, a death you deserve to die, and yet the resurrection, eternal life that your soul yearns for. For those of us who are Christians, people must hear, must believe this gospel in order to be saved and brought into a righteous relationship with God. They will only be saved if they hear and believe this message. There is no other way. God, man, Christ. Fourthly then, response. It's worth noting first that often when it gets to the response aspect of the gospel, we often get it wrong. And that applies both to like unchurched people and churchy people trying to help. For many in Grace Mount, they're pretty aware that they live with guilt. Doesn't take much convincing. It's even pretty clear for most that their guilt is before God. However, because of uh, ingrained cultural Catholicism, the instinctive reaction when one is confronted with guilt is to pop down and see the local priest, go to confession, and jobs are good in, you've got an easy, quick fix. Now, when we launch an Easter, one of the things we will need to be on guard against is people just visiting our church to appease their own conscience by their mere attendance. See, mere church attendance is not the adequate response to this God, man, Christ good news. But as Christians, sometimes we can get the response wrong as well when we're trying to help people who are trapped in the cycles of emptiness and sin. A girl from Grace Mount got pregnant recently, 
as a result from a guy that she's not seeing anymore. Outwardly, she's pretty happy. Inwardly, she's lonely and petrified. And she walked into a church, and she's not claiming to be a Christian. And the first person that she spoke to, their advice was this. Do you know, you should really get married to the father of your baby now. Good advice? Problem is, if she's not a Christian, imposing Christian behavior on her is asking her to show the fruit of response before she's even responded. It's expecting Christian behavior from someone who is not a Christian, and so it is asking them to do the impossible. It's like feeding them something that is only going to make them throw up. You see, the required response is not one, attempts to appease God through religious rituals, or two, covering our sinful choices with the cloak of right behavior. That is not the biblical response. The biblical response is always repentance from sin and faith in Christ. Now, let me just talk quickly through repentance. Biblical repentance always involves three things. First, it begins in a heart transformed by the Spirit of God to the point where that heart not only sees our sin, but hates our sin. Number one, it begins with a heart transformed by the Spirit of God. Two, that is then evidence in a verbal confession of repentance and faith in Christ. So, begins with a heart transformed by the Spirit, emerges in the vocalized by the individual, and third, it then results in a transformed life that bears the fruit of that repentance. See the three things? Begins with a heart transformed by the Spirit of God, emerges in the confession of that from the mouth, and then results in a life transformed by that gospel. Now, we do not help people if we merely expect or teach, number two, that all you have to do is confess your repentance and your faith in Christ. We must earnestly pray for number one, and we must seriously and carefully lay out the certain cost of number three. If you're not a Christian, maybe thinking it through. Maybe getting to the point where you are, you are counting this cost. You do need to be aware that it will involve the whole of your life for the rest of your life. It will transform every part of you. It may challenge everything you have ever known. It may cost you everyone you have ever loved. It will certainly come of the cost of the sin that you have loved. Let me tell you this. It is worth it. Because repentance brings life. Faith in Christ brings eternal life. But before you confess and profess that you're a Christian, you've got to count the cost. See, the difficulty coming with repentance is that it will be costly and it will look very different when dealing with our broken and our chaotic lives. Repentance will always involve hard decisions and dealing with the consequences of our selfish and sinful lifestyles. Let me give you one example to think through. How about the man who comes to Christ 
from Gracemount has three children by two different women and wants to turn from his sinful, abusive past and be a proper father to his children. What does repentance look like for him? Let me tell you what it's not. It is not clean and it is not simple. It is going to be long-term and it is going to be costly. Let me give you another example uh, from Mez's book, his new book, Church in Hard Places. Mez speaks about a little girl called Innocencia that he met when he was church planting in Brazil. I'll read from the book. Take Innocencia, a 13-year-old street girl from northern Brazil. She'd lived on the streets for most of her life. Her parents abandoned her at five years old, and from the age of six onwards, she'd sold her body for sex to pay for food and to feed her glue habit. When we found her, she was in a mess. One of her arms had been crippled from a beating she took on the streets from a punter. All of her teeth were missing, and she had been raped countless times. One day, when she heard of the life-transforming truth about God, her sinful position before him, and the good news of what Jesus had done, she wanted to repent on the spot. We prayed with her and trusted that she'd made a genuine profession of faith. Several days later, we found Innocencia barely conscious in the streets, a bag of industrial strength glue at her feet. My Brazilian team were devastated and angry. Her repentance had seemed so genuine. We got her to her feet, clothed her up at our center, and spoke to her about the commitment she had made to Christ. Oh, Pastor Mez, she said, I do love Jesus. I have turned from my sin. Last night I turned a client down and I'm now only doing six bags a day instead of 10. She beamed at me with pride and I felt chastened. Was I really expecting that she'd be a finished product on day one of conversion? Do you see the point? Because the response required is more than just a confession of Christ, but involves a lifetime of repentance, our strategy for mission must involve a lifetime of discipleship. If your strategy for mission does not include a lifetime strategy for discipleship, then your mission strategy is doomed to failure. We are not called to get conversions, but to make obedient disciples. And if the response required from them is the whole of their life for the rest of their life, then the input required from us is going to be the whole of our lives for the rest of our lives. How long will we be in Grace Mount? I don't know the answer to that question. It may be that it takes the whole of our life to model a discipleship that perseveres until the very end. Because the response we need from those in Grace Mounts is not just a confession of their lips. It will be the whole of their life persevering until the end of their life. God, man, Christ, response. If this good news, if this gospel does not ascend to the top of our priorities when we do a triage of our church, of our nation, of our mission agency, of our unreached people group, then we are misinformed. If we don't get this, we have nothing to give. But when we realize that this is good news from a good God for a rebel people, 
we have a reason. Actually, stronger than that, we have a commission to go and be disciple-making disciples who plant church-planting churches. Edinburgh, Scotland, the UK, Europe, the world is full of people dying without Christ. And we must make it our ambition to preach Christ where he is not already known. You up for that? Because Jesus says we've got to go. Let me pray.